When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. All with our award-winning commentary, opinion, and insights. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello, good evening. Welcome to the game. We are live from Newcastle. I am Alison Rudd. I'm hosting an evening of lively, informed football debate. Um, And we're in front of a a passionate and knowledgeable, one of the most knowledgeable group of supporters in the country. So no pressure on you guys at all. Um, This evening we're going to be discussing um, life at St. James's Park. If you're a Newcastle fan and you're sending an email, are you signing it off with a smiley face or a frowny face? Is the club in a period of calm or is it the calm before yet another storm? We'll be examining state of play at the other clubs in the North East and we'll be delving into England and Roy Hodgson's valiant attempts to make sure any optimism we felt about the World Cup is dampened. Um, to discuss and navigate through these weighty topics, I have a fantastic panel. The uh, Times Chief Football Correspondent is Oliver Kay on my right. Uh, on my far left is our man in the northeast, George Colkin, and our special guest is Steve Harper, who, after 20 loyal years at Newcastle, is one of their most beloved players. He now plays, of course. Um, at Hull City and I have it on good authority that his signing at that club swung Hull being named as City of Culture this morning. (laughs) Four months, see, I've turned the place round. (laughs) So we're going to start with, where else? Newcastle United. I I understand there's going to be a plaque unveiled at St James's Park and it's going to say this is the birthplace of the tactic that so ruffles Jose Mourinho. So makes it sound like it's going well. You know, Alan Pardew, tactically outwitted Chelsea, they beat Spurs, but there were losses to Hull, losses to Sunderland. So where are we in this strange state of flux? Is it good news or bad news at the club? And I'm going to start with our man in the northeast, George. Thank you very much. Um, well, uh, it's been a deeply unpredictable start to the season. Um, 
it's it's difficult to predict anything at Newcastle, as as you all know. Um, uh, there were worrying signs, I thought, uh, uh, obviously in the summer, not signing a player permanently, and um, obviously the Sunderland game was a sort of big disappointment. I think just at the point where we were predicting or expecting Newcastle to lurch into crisis, they then brought it round um, with those two very fine uh, victories over Chelsea and then over Spurs. You know, the way Newcastle is set up at the minute, it always feels like it's crisis postponed, delayed, it's just around the corner. Two or three defeats in a row can do that. Um, and there's also the way the club is set up at the minute. Um, you know, to describe the relationships at Newcastle um, as as delicate, as tortuous, as bizarre um, is you know is an understatement. Um, you know, one thing I would say is that there's a very good first eleven at Newcastle, really good, um, and one that is certainly worthy of being where they are on the table. There's not enough depth. Um, uh, I think Alan Pardew's got some things very right in the last two or three weeks. His the way he's handled Hatem Ben Arfa, for example, who's undoubtedly Newcastle's most talented player, but um, has been left out and deservedly so, in my opinion, uh, has been interesting. Um, you know, there's reasons to be positive, but there's that big, big reason to be fearful, <coughs> and that's Mike Ashley and what might happen next. So, are you are you saying it is? it is impossible to separate tactics and personnel from the way the club is run in order to be able to say whether you feel optimism for the rest of the season or not I'm a naturally optimistic person but I'm no you're not I'm naturally pessimistic when it comes to Newcastle I mean I think that's the way I think that's kind of the only way to be really um you know I just think however well things things are going at Newcastle there's there's a decision around the corner you know that's how I would that's how I would term it um, it's not necessarily a bad decision but I think we've seen that, that this regime is incapable of stringing two good decisions together, I mean that's what I would say and you know after two years of um, sort of listening to and, and because it was something that I kind of believed in this whole idea of stability at Newcastle uh, putting down foundations um, and, and looking to build, you know there's then a little bit of flux and the answer to that is by bringing in Joe Kinnear as if that's in any way going to encourage stability of any sort. Um, so that's what I mean. I mean, you know, there are, there are good people at Newcastle, some very good players. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, moderately, I'm, I'm pleased with where they are on the table. I'm certainly pleased with the last couple of results. Um, I just wouldn't want to sort of, I wouldn't want to take it much further than that. Can we, can we just clarify, because I don't actually know, Remy, wasn't that Joe Kinnear's... Has that got anything to do with Joe Kinnear? Would that have happened if he didn't exist? Um, trying to think how I can phrase this uh, most politely. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Alison. Depends who's in charge of the PR. Thank you. Who's taking the credit? The, the deal for Remy was sort of in place. The, the, the outline for that deal was in place before Joe Kinnear came to the club. That was the work of um, Derek Lambias. There were other similar things in place with Darren Bent, you know, obviously that didn't work out, um, and indeed Gomez. There were structures of deals, um, you know, in place. My understanding is that that happened in spite of Joe Kinnear and not because of him. And I don't think he'd met him before, before the day he signed. Okay, I'm glad we've clarified he did meet, that. He, he, did meet, he, did meet other, he did meet other potential signings and they didn't happen. Okay, Steve. <laughs> 
Steve, with, with the benefit of separation and mm. stepping away and playing somewhere else, when, now when you look at Newcastle, do you, do you see it differently? Do you, it, it, when you're outside of the club, does it look like it's run differently? Or do you, is it more, is it a cl- more, cl- is it more clar- clarification for you? I think you see it as a fan now, and as a fan, whenever you think there's a period of stability, having experienced 20 years of it, that's when you worry. <laughs> because it's almost this is a little bit calm and a little bit sensible as George said what's going to happen next because it always has a habit of shooting itself in the foot and I've often described it as a roller coaster in it and it is it is you know as another thing I've described as in the past is it's a it's a bipolar football club and <laughs> George touched on it himself there when when things are um, are going well you know, it's all Champions League and we're heading in the right direction and then you lose a couple of games and the doom and gloom sets in and over the, over my period of time there, there was never enough sort of middle ground where, we're, you know, what we're actually, we're doing all right here. That's almost not acceptable as a as a Newcastle, Newcastle fan and, um, I mean, George touched on pretty much everything there, I think. Um, the relationship between Alan Pardew and Joe Kinnear. I think if Joe Kinnear was brought in to be the manager, ultimately be the new manager of Newcastle United, he would be by now. You know, I think he's he's, he's quite happy doing the job he's doing. He's got the owners here. Um, you know, whether he's, he's confident or not, he's certainly taken the credit for the Remy signing, whether it was his or not. Um, whoever's it was, it's a very, very good one. Um, so we'll have more of them, please. Um, and at the moment, it, it's good. But you know, after a very disappointing derby defeat, if they did then go on and lose to Chelsea and Tottenham, you just think what might have what might have happened? Would there have been another change? Because by all accounts, what Alan Pardew said on goals on Sunday didn't go down very well with with the people of the man upstairs, and he probably needed those results after the derby game to keep his job because. What he did the previous year was was fantastic, finishing fifth. But last year, as George said, the, the squad isn't big enough to cope with the with the Europa League. And this year, there are no excuses. They have a very good one to eleven. And I think if they don't finish in the top ten of the Premier League, it'll cost Alan Pardew his job. Ollie, where where do you think Newcastle will finish this season? Well, you look at the, their um, their players, and it's, 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 it's as George has said, as Steve has said, it's, it's, a, it's a very good eleven. You look at the bench, and it's unless. Adam Banoff has been sat there on, on the naughty step. That it, it's not a, it's not a strong bench, is it? it it's um, it's it's not a deep squad that looks like it's been brilliantly invested in. Um, and I think on a good day, as they've shown in the last few weeks, I think Newcastle can beat pretty much anyone. But on a on a bad day, um, they can lose to anyone. I mean, you, there are a lot of teams like that in this Premier League. But Newcastle seem to have a lot of. Um, I'd be interested on Steve's perspective on this but Newcastle seems to have a lot of moody players who who, who, who go between being you know top class um, and being well bottom of the class it's it's people like you know Kabai Teote Ben Arfa their difference between two seasons ago and last season was just it was night and day it was chalk and cheese and it, it's that tells me that Newcastle are an extremely ter- temperamental group of players and a, a temperamental team and, and I think for, for, as, for as far as I can see, they, they are going to probably continue to 
sort of swing between one extreme and the other because they're you know they are a moody bunch of players. Is that a euphemism for foreign when you say temperamental? Well, just in a foreign. No, well, <laughs> to, to be honest, I think it's the, I think it's the type of foreign player they've got, and, and maybe it's maybe I'm even going to be more specific and, and say it's French because you look at you, you look at what France the French the French national team are like and have been like, and this probably current this current generation of French players they are they seem to be very moody they seem to turn it on and off the, the talent um, depending on their mood and um, you know, I'm talking about Tiote he's not French but, he, but he's um, French speaking he's, he's, he's French speaking <laughs> but he, 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 um, he is a player who I, I thought looking at him two years ago I thought, I thought God he, he would improve any team in the Premier League he would improve Man City even though they were winning the league he'd improve Man United Arsenal certainly um, and I looked at him last season and it was just staggering the difference it, 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 it was he didn't, look, he didn't look like a footballer last no, season I, I always hate talking about body language because it's it's um, it's quite deceptive in a lot of cases but he just didn't look like he didn't look interested and I think a lot of you know, Kabai and Ben Arf and people like that they probably came to Newcastle having you know having had it sold to them almost as a stepping stone and I think you could tell yeah. by last season I think probably a lot of them wanted to go after the I, I, th- I, think, I think you touch on, on something that's, that's important there um, and it's, it's not it's not the foreign thing per se at all um, uh, what it is is where Newcastle are in terms of their financial mm. structuring um, they have to look for value in the market now. By and large, they're not going to find it. They're not going to find it here, for kind of obvious reasons. So they've done very, very well in terms of the players they've they've brought in in terms of talent. Um, but they've had to invest in. I, mean, I don't want to say wrongens, but they've had to invest in people who've got checkered character. There's a reason why some of these players yeah. are available for for not too much money, and it's either baggage in terms of Benafa. You know, I, I found it quite interesting at the start of this season when Kabai effectively went on strike. Um, when Arsenal, uh, when Arsenal were in for him, because that's how Newcastle got Benafa, and that's how that's how Newcastle got Sissoko when they did. So, um, you know, you know, I, it's it's a it's a it's an extremely delicate. I, I do feel sorry actually for Lampard in this in this scenario because, um, you know, as manager he wants to improve. He wants to improve the the team. Players want to be playing for a for a, a winning side. He, he, he has been selling promises to players that we will get better, we'll invest this summer, we'll do this and do that. It hasn't happened. Now, if Newcastle are then struggling for motivation, it looks like it, it reflects on him. I'm, I'm, I'm sure some of the time it does, but I'm just saying I think he's in a difficult position. They've got a team of, sort of, of, of misfits in some ways. Mm. Steve, it's a, listening to this, it sounds like a miracle they even... Some, and they have, they have put together some really almost quite stunning performances. Uh, they have. I mean, being there at the end, of, obviously, you know, several players arrived in January, you know, be it French, foreign, whatever you want to call them. And it's, it's a heavy shirt in Newcastle United shirt. It's a tough place to play. And we've had players in the past, good players, who couldn't handle the crowd and it got a little bit too much for them, subsequently gone to other clubs and, and succeeded. Um, and I think it took them a while to, to sort of get what it is in, about this club and when you when you lose 6-0 at home to Liverpool and then lose 3-0 at home to Sunderland it, it opens a few cracks and it certainly did last year and I think a few of them thought hang on a second what have I done and when you've got pretty much 50% of your dressing room speaking French mm-hmm. and a team is struggling it does open 
it does open a few. How can you explain? How would you? How do? How did you ever? How do you say to someone or a group of players who have no experience of what it's like to put on a Newcastle shirt and maybe don't quite get it? How? What can you say to them to prepare them for what it means and the diff, the subtle differences for playing for an averagely sized French sized French club, for example? Well, it's hard when I only know restaurant French, really. I, 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 struggle, <laughs> I struggle to put it in food terms. But, uh, no, we, I mean, we had interpreters there. And I mean, when, you, when you're playing in front of 52,000 and the, the fans are letting you know exactly what they think of you, I think it's pretty obvious that you need to do something about it. But it, it, was, it was at times uncomfortable last year. Um, like I said, when the team is struggling and you, you've got half your dressing room sitting together and, and, and talking, it, it, it can... It can be difficult, but you know, fortunately, we we managed to get over the line. And I think what you've seen this year is they've started to get it a little bit more. And we've certainly seen the the best of the likes of, you know, Debussy's really mm. come to the fore. His form, Kabai's, you know, as George said, yeah. got, got over his little strop. And um, and I think we're we're starting to see them bedding in. Maybe they've realised, um, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, Oliver mentioned it there. The, he looked a really top player and I think last year maybe lost his identity a little bit maybe started believing a few of the things agents were saying in his ear and he, he rather than just doing what it says on the tin which is getting the ball back and giving it to the players that can play he started to think he was a player himself and started appearing <laughs> outside left and outside right <laughs> terrible, 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 you know, terrible and, and you just think hang on a sec I remember you know Colaccini one day in training actually stopped training and said check you know what you're doing up there come back get in here this is this is what you do stick to doing that and I think that's what he's that's what he's doing now you know Graham Soonish used to say it was his job at Liverpool to, to get the ball back and give it to the players that can that can play and I think that's now Czech's realised that's what he's good at we're seeing the, the best of him again as well but ultimately I think the, the French players suddenly realise what Newcastle United is is all about and what is expected of them and we're seeing the benefits of that now. Uh-huh. By the way, I just want to say very quickly but that arguably Newcastle's best result this season may have been France's, uh, France's win uh, last night and, and the only reason I mean that is that is that you know there haven't been new signings in the summer to push this squad along um, but having the World Cup at the end of this season for I think it's eight eight maybe eight players at Newcastle have a realistic chance of getting there I think that's massive I think that's absolutely massive um, you so know. what you're saying is Newcastle could win the World Cup <laughs> <laughs> well they could get sent home in disgrace <laughs> I think that's more likely uh, I, I have to say when when Newcastle beat Chelsea I felt it was tangible that the moody players had connected with the fans and connected with what it meant and connected with whatever party was asking them to do. And I found that quite a refreshing sight. But I wonder, anyone in the room, maybe we, I don't know, does anyone want to say what they feel? Does anyone feel that a corner might have been turned at Newcastle? There's a man with a mic who will come over to you. Hi, hi, uh, Scott from uh, Newcastle. Um, (laughs) My worry is, um, We've got Norwich at the weekend, um, Chris Hewton's coming back. We've obviously come off two good results. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's just, you know, uh, like a flash pan thing or, you know, 
Norwich should come and get a result there. That, that's my feeling. That is the ultimate expression of pessimism. You've, the, it's, the, you're scared of Norwich. I mean, the, the, this, this, this can't be good. Okay. That's a proper Newcastle fan, though, off yeah, the back yeah. of two big results. Yeah, yeah. That is your ultimate yeah. Newcastle fan, New, Norwich and West Brom to come. Yeah. Does anyone think that, you, that Newcastle will stuff Norwich? This no. is so sad. Have you seen Norwich play this season? <laughs> They're all like yeah, pursuing because of the second. job he did, so they want Newcastle it's, to win one. Sunderland nil. had not won a single game of football. You know, yeah. they'd not won a game of football until yeah. Newcastle turned up. So, Tom from Sunderland. <laughs> Tom from Sunderland. I think they'll smash Norwich. <laughs> 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 We're coming on to you a lot later. And uh, whilst 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 I'm facing you out there, and this is a. This is a bit mean and predictable, but is there anyone prepared to raise their hand to think that the appointment of Joe Kinnear is useful or makes any sense at all? Okay, that's fine. Good, good. For, for the benefit of, of, our, of our listeners, I think you should explain precisely how many people were okay, there. Okay, there were a total of... Oh, hello, Mr Kinnear. <laughs> 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 Hi, my name's John from Durham. Um, just about the joke and ear and the whole general thing, do, do you not think that uh, Mike Ashley enjoys conflict? He enjoys conflict in the boardroom, and he wants conflict in the club, and he seems to get results through it. So, although the fans get absolutely irritated by all this carry-on, the net result seems to be fairly good results of minimal spend. I just wondered what the panel's opinion was of that you know, but how much of a driving force is he behind, you know, the current ethos of the club? That's a very good point. There is a sort of perverse element to his nature, I think, which isn't always an, a negative, but there is a perversity to his approach to football. Ollie, Mike Ashley, what's he doing? Well, I, I agree with that. There does, seem, there does seem to be a feeling sometimes that, he, well, looking from the outside, looking from further away than George and certainly further away than Steve, but it seems like he almost gets bored it seems like you know everything's ticking along nicely, um, and, and you know I mean it, there seemed to be no logic to sacking Chris Hutton when he did. No, um, and there seemed to be no logic to um, hiring um, Joe Kinnear, and it, it, it almost seems like if if he's not going to be um, getting his kicks from watching a team competing in the top four or in the Champions League or whatever, it seems like he almost seems Some really to get annoying kicks. people. Well, perhaps. I, don't, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I always have to come back to the fact he's a very good businessman. And, and I suppose if you look financially at Newcastle, they, they are now a, a, a stronger uh, proposition than they were, albeit not when it comes to competing for, for, for players, seemingly. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's really strange because I, I, looking at it from the outside, I, I can't work out what, what Ashley is there for, what, what's really in it for him. Because it seems like I mean, he's, he has put money in. Um, he's you know there are all these loans and so on, and it can't be much fun. So it, it seems almost that he seems to be getting his kicks from winding people up, or, or, or antagonising, or getting his mates in, and then falling out with people, and then moving them on. It's, it, it's really weird. I can't. I mean, I, in all seriousness, I can't. I can't sort of believe that that you know that 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 there's any sense from him that he just enjoys winding people up i mean he, he does do it i mean he does it like regular as clockwork um 
you know, they talked about a director of football um, last season and it was a conversation they had within the club. I know this directly through Alan Pardew. Um, he was certainly okay with the idea. Um, you know, we know what a good job Graham Carr does as chief scout. Alan obviously did a good job in the season they finished fifth. That relationship could be a bit smoother, I guess, in terms of who's identifying the players, how does it work, blah, blah, blah. And the idea is that someone comes in above there's a bit more football strategy there Derek Lambias wasn't a football man Mike Ashley's not a football man and so you can understand that logic and it's something that plenty of clubs have done having said that I think the you know I think the I think the idea was that they would put somebody in there with experience of doing it um, who had a track record of doing it that man is not joking here and I just before we leave this topic I want to know have you had dinner with Mike Ashley no you're a drink with Mike Ashley. Um, we had an end of season thing where he was he was buying everybody a drink. I think it was three for a pound. I think it was supposed to be, <laughs> supposed to be nine ninety nine, but you got three for a pound. I think. Um, I always found he was very uncomfortable around people, you know, with his white shirt and his jeans and his his hands in. And he was almost, you know, I'd read about him and heard he was this sort of. You know, recluse and you know, mega successful businessman, but he, he almost seems un- uncomfortable around players. And I mean, to touch on your point, I mean, he can't. I've had hundreds of fans say, Is he doing it on purpose? Is he just doing it to you know, upset us and all that? And I, I just, I'm joking, he is, knows him and it, is his pal by all yeah. accounts. And when Derek uh, chose to move on, it, it probably filled a gap. But you know, when they had Graham Card bringing the players in and Alan's job, the gaffer's job. As he, as he was a little slip there um, oh, it's his job to get the best out of them now Joe is supposedly responsible for bringing the players in where does that leave Graham Carr and Alan Pardew's yeah. job is still to get the best out of the players and as I said you know hit the nail on the head over there after a couple of good results you think hmm we get beat off Norwich and then we don't get anything off West Brom we'll have a new manager and all that and it's just the life of a Newcastle fan really isn't it I think you can at least say about Joe Kinnear that he's probably an improvement as a director of football on Dennis Wise, isn't he? If, 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 if nothing else, he might bring more gravitas, uh, more sophistication. Probably more popular as well, actually. <laughs> but, um, there we go. Mm. Thank you, gents. Right, let's move on to international football. Um, I have a theory that it's perfectly legitimate once you have qualified for a major tournament to then play abysmally, lose matches, as long as you're in some clever way preparing for the big one. We're not going to win any prizes. England are not going to win any prizes for wowing at Wembley in November when they should be thinking about the sunshine of Brazil. So who on the panel, I'll start with Ollie as he's chief football correspondent, is going to disagree with me and say that, does it matter? Can, can Roy do, do what he likes at this point? Yeah, he can. He, he was right to experiment, um, not necessarily the experiments that everybody would have chosen I don't know, but um, I, I mean I, I'm not too hung up on the results I mean, they, look, they, they, they lost the last two games I don't think that necessarily matters all that much but I, I just don't really see any kind of great source for optimism and to be honest I didn't see any great source for optimism when they were qualifying last month beating um, Montenegro and Poland I mean they were, they were two decent performances but they were the same old Flaws or some of the same old flaws were apparent. I mean, I, I just don't think they look like you can trust them defensively, or certain games where they do get it right defensively. I don't think they look like they can 
attack with any fluency or imagination whatsoever. I don't think they ever have the right balance. And um, yeah, so if, if we're talking about um, those two results over the last few days, I don't think the results matter, but I, I think the fact is that you're looking for real positives um, from these games. And I think if you cite a few positives, I thought Joe Hart was better last night than, than he has been for a while. Um, I thought Andros Townsend was good, but we're clutching at straws. I, don't, I just don't think there is even the nucleus of a good team there. So it doesn't matter what he experiments with, there isn't anybody he could bring in to change your pessimism? Um, I don't, I don't, to be honest, I, I, think he's, I think he's been dealt a really poor hand as an England manager. I think he, he's come in at a time where what I consider to be a very, very good generation, which is the sort of Terry Ferdinand Cole, Beckham Skulls, Gerard Lampard generation, that, that is, you know, they're, they're really at the fag end of that generation. Um, I think there's a group of players behind that who are of nothing like the same quality beyond Rooney. Um, and then beyond that, you're looking at younger players. And we're, we're getting incredible, there seems to be this sudden need to get very excited about players who look good on match of the day one week and you know someone like Ross Barkley is a very good player but you're getting people suddenly talking about him being a starter or being in the squad for England and very good player but he's he's yet to prove anything really I mean it's not like um, if I can ramble on for another minute I mean people keep talking about wild cards who could be England's wild card I think we've already got Sort of four or five wild cards in the squad who, who are people who have not yet really proved anything. I kept going back to um, um, 1986. England's wild card was Peter Beardsley, who'd, who'd basically been brilliant in the first division. I think it was 36, 37 goals over two seasons for Newcastle in the first division. 1990, the wild card was David Platt, who had just been player of the year in a very good Aston Villa team. And then we get to you know, 2012, the wild card was Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, who barely played for Arsenal. And now we're talking about, you know, wild cards. Is it going to be Berahino? Is it going to be Barkley, Morrison? All these players who have barely kicked a ball in the Premier League. And it's just, that is indicative of a, a real lack of depth and real lack of quality across the board in English football. Oh, that was a downer, wasn't it? Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> Steve, 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 you're patriotic. You're, you're, I don't know what you are. You're something, you're better than that. I think the, the experiment... It's, it's, you call it experimental by picking a few different players and young wildcards, whatever you call them, but they're still out there playing under the same pragmatic framework that England mm. have and the way they've qualified and the way they will play in the World Cup. I think a real experiment would have picked a younger, vibrant side and asked something different of them because you mentioned a few players there, the likes of Barkley, who play a certain way for their club, then go into the England setup, where by all accounts they do a lot of shape, they're restricted in what they're expected to do, they get behind the ball, and you're limiting what you're going to get from them players by not letting them express themselves in the way for the club. And when you've got two free hits, basically, of Chile and Germany at home, rather than putting you know, more square pegs in square holes, do something different, play a different formation, go out and say, you know, you can say afterwards, oh, the result wasn't important because they played the same way. For me, a true experiment would have been to try five at the back, try four, one, four, one, just try something different. Try and say, say to these young lads, <laughs> not that, I wouldn't go that far, but say to these young lads, go out, 
you know, you know, work on a few set pieces and say, go out, enjoy it. There's ninety thousand people there. Go out. There's no pressure on you. It's not a qualifier. We've qualified. Go and enjoy yourselves. And what if you get beat three or four nil and say, well, yeah, I tried something different. I gave them the freedom to play. It didn't work. And I think you would have got a lot more respect from people by saying, you know what, good on him because he gave them the opportunity to go out and express themselves. It didn't work. And maybe, you know, if you throw on the main saying sink or swim, maybe a few more might have swum. Or, or what you do is you play your strongest team in the system you think England ought to play in the World Cup finals, but you substitute one maximum of two positions for a player who is like Adam Milana, someone who you've got a soft spot for if you want Hodgson he appears to have a soft spot for him I got him and in the squad him. last week in Southampton did you not see that I got him again <laughs> <laughs> you had to mention him didn't you <laughs> and you you let him have 90 minutes and I, to me that that would be the best way to use these friendlies George um, I've, I have to say I mean I've, I've I don't think I've ever felt this Untethered from from England, um, there's a you know professional reason for that. I, I cover Ireland now, Republic of Ireland, and so I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen any England games recently. Also, um, I think as sort of as, as Ollie was saying there, you know there isn't much to get excited about. I mean, I'm, you know I am English, but um, I'm not kind of feeling uh, a lot there. And the other side of it is I've kind of experienced the England thing a little bit as a as a journalist and and pretty much hated the whole um, the whole experience um, that was a that was a while ago but there was this and I think things have changed but I'll, I'll just say this um, that there was a institutionalized arrogance about the FA about the about the players about the media most definitely certainly would say that and you know and also about the people that followed the team now that was getting on for 10 years ago so I think things have changed a bit. I'm delighted to see that the England team, when they get to Brazil, will be staying in Rio. So even if they're not very good, they'll have a good time and they'll find out. They'll find out. They'll find out what a tournament's all about. And I do mean that. I mean that absolutely, sincerely. I think that's a great move that they're in. The, going to be in the middle of the city, and they'll actually experience what a tournament is like, as opposed to being in some five-star prison camp in the middle of nowhere, which I think is disgraceful. The problem with George is he always sits on the fence. Is there anybody? Who would like to say who, a, either who they think would be a good wild card or feel more optimistic than the panel appear to about England's prospects? Uh, my name is Obi. Um, I, I'm from Newcastle. <laughs> um, my um, my take on the international team, especially England, is is that the problem they have is it's not about the individual players because if you look at the other international teams individually. Not all the uh, players are as good as England players, but the problem that England always have, and it's always continued, is obviously in this current team, is players don't actually fit into the uh, system. There's no system that Hodgson is taking. He's not actually brave enough to find a system that works for all the players that he has. Because at the moment, all the players seem to be very good at direct football, which is quickness. That's what they play in the Premiership. But when they play in international, they've been told to play a bit more defensive, pass the ball. Obviously, that's what Spain do. But they're not really, they don't do that most of the time in the Premiership. And they struggle when they play in the international games. So you're, you're saying that Roy should uh, uh, say, look, we're playing international football, we can't play the way 
We yeah. play week in, week out. We have yeah. to change it. When you come to England camp, you have to play a different type of football. A different, but, but if, if he's brave enough to find a system that works for the players, that England players that we have at the moment, find a system that works for them, then implement it. At the moment, if we start playing the way Spain or other teams play, we're kind of behind because they've already, they have a couple of years ahead of us in terms of mastering the system. Sure, yeah. We need to find a system that works, that'll probably work in future because at the moment we're behind. We need to be a bit more proactive, be a bit more advantageous in terms of finding a system that works, that'll be working in five, ten years' time. Oli, we haven't got time to change the way we play. No, and it, to be honest, I, I think Hodgson has tried. I think he's, I think he's taken himself out of his comfort zone um, in trying at times a more expansive game. I, I think we see. Um, I mean, there was that game in Kiev against Ukraine in September where you know England really grinded out a, a really turgid nil-nil draw, and, and I think Hodgson was quite happy with that. Um, and I think he's he, from what I can sense from him and speaking to him a lot he, he feels that there is a need and, and an obligation really to um, to try this more expansive approach and I, I don't think it particularly suits him but I also think it leaves England sort of between two stools and I, I don't think they can suddenly um, decide now uh, let's change our style because you look at it he's only really got one game which is Two training sessions before he names his squad in in, in the summer. I mean, the, the limitations of an England job mean that you can't really do a great deal. You, you've got to go with what you've got, and um, I think I think it'd be very difficult to do the type of thing that you're talking about. But at the moment, it feels to me like they're they're neither one thing nor the other. Ollie, when it, when England play Denmark in March, the last friendly we have, do you think? Betting-wise, odds-wise, do you think John Terry will be playing in that game? No, no chance. No. Because? Well, he retired from international football. I, I actually think um, it's not a very popular view, or at least it wasn't before last Friday. Um, I actually think he would improve England's defence if, if he was there, because I think he's, he has qualities as a leader and as a, uh, a sort of proactive ball-winning defender that other English defenders don't have. But I, I also think, I mean, the baggage that comes with him He's 30, he'll be 33 next month. He he decided ultimately to to, to turn his back on England. But he'd love right, to be right back. Well, he? well, he shouldn't he shouldn't have he shouldn't have thrown his toys out the pram and and retired when, to my mind, the FA had a a good reason to go after him. It's 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 you know in an ideal world he would not have walked out well. You know, in an ideal world, he would not have come across um, Anton Ferdinand that day. But um, it was uh, no John, John Terry. I, we spoke to Hodgson about this last night. His his view was, you know, John Terry moved. You know, John Terry retired from international football at the start of this campaign. We move on, and I think even if Terry would improve the team, it's not really the difference between England winning the World Cup and not. Let's be honest. Who would your first choice send? I have no be? idea. Who would you, who would you pick? Who would you pick? Um, it, it would be Jagielka and one other. And, and I went into this qualifying campaign thinking that um, Jagielka was was a weak link, but I think he is. I think he's been the, the strongest of, by some distance of, of the back four. I think Cahill is erratic, um, perhaps good when he's got his back to the wall, but 
prone to errors in, in other games. I think Jones and Spalling have great potential, but they're just not playing in central defence for their clubs. And even even if John Terry stays in London and England go to the Brazil and end up by some miracle winning it, he'd find some way of being on the pitch, <laughs> wearing his shin pads and his shorts. Yeah, the draw, the draw was made on December the 6th and England could very easily be drawn against Newcastle. So. <laughs> can we end, can we, before we have our interval where you can have a beer and whatever, um, can we have a vote, does anybody think England will get beyond the quarter-final stage in Brazil? That is a resounding. Oh no, we have what we have. We people have actually, one. people actually folding their arms. <laughs> <laughs> we have one arm in the air. You, sir, you wouldn't like to say why you're optimistic, would you? Well, yeah. Having uh, sorry, John Marshall, having watched England win the World Cup in 1966 with a great deal more perhaps uh, passion and belief than I'm hearing from the panel tonight, um, I say the World Cup is a bit like the FA Cup. Um, and once you get out of that group, it becomes a knockout game of football. And you've got to go there and try and win, not do what we did against Portugal and the Europeans, where we scored a goal and then defended for 84 minutes. England don't do that well. Mm. It's not the way we play football. And, um, and I think what John Terry brings to the side that we could do with more of, he'll die for the cause. He'll put his head between someone who's footing the ball if it needs be. Um, and not enough England players show that kind of... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Passion, and if I think we've got some fab, I watch kids football every week, and uh, and uh, you know, and I watch the local teams, and I really, really do think we've got some fabulous footballers. But you've got to empower them and give them self belief, and, and ask them to win a game of football, not to try not to lose, but to actually go and win. And I think that's when England's at its best. So that's why I go to Sunderland every week and keep believing they're going to win. Uh, <laughs> it's incurable. But, but I mean, England need more of that, you know. <laughs> pessimism, optimism. There we go. But I, 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 love, I love that comparison between the World Cup and the FA Cup. And you're from the, you're from the North East. I mean, there's... <laughs> Well, we won that too once. Yes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, there's the New England manager. Enjoy your 15 minute interval. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. Um, what we established, I think, in um, section one was that Ollie Kay is cynical, George Colkin is cynical. Steve Harper is cynical and I'm a ray, I'm a ray of sunshine um, we're going to move on to the exciting uh, exciting world of Sunderland um, before, before we do can, it'd be nice to establish you know the split in the audience how many, how many people here are Sunderland supporters <laughs> there are one, two, three, four and his dad and his dad five. his dad will be back in the yes, so five and is everyone else a Newcastle fan is there anyone who's not a Newcastle fan oh can you shout out what you are Liverpool Quite a cross section then. Have we got any Peterborough United questions coming up? <laughs> Stacks. I did uh, play against them in pre-season though, so I, I didn't. I, 
<laughs> so, and, but even if you're not a Sunderland fan, they are quite obviously the most interesting club of the decade, if not the century. Um, and it doesn't go away, you know, we have a, they have a new manager, but the squabbling continues. You know, Martin O'Neill feels he has to say, I didn't do anything wrong, it all went wrong with Paolo. Paolo has to say, I inherited an absolute mess. So let's try and unravel whose fault it all was. That has to go to George first. I've had my phone off for an hour, they might have got another manager. Um, <laughs> Well, um, there, is, uh, there is no easy answer to that, unfortunately. Um, in terms of those two personalities, um, I'm very much in favour of Martin O'Neill. Um, I've got to know him quite well, particularly since he's left Sunderland, actually. And he's a thoroughly decent, um, thoroughly decent bloke. It's not, um, it's, it was fairly obvious that things were not going well towards the end of his time, time at the club. There were a lot of reasons for that. I'm sure he has to take... Um, a lot of responsibility for it too um, but again we've been talking about dysfunctional relationships at, at Newcastle or whatever and, and certainly there was a lot of that going on there he didn't do due diligence on Sunderland um, I've been speaking to him on and off about the whole island situation and sort of a month after the job became uh, <coughs> open I sort of said you know how's it going what's you know what's going on I'm still at the prevarication stage, he said, and he's been at the prevarication stage the last 40 years, as far as I can work out. Um, but um, very interesting, uh, I was just having a chat with somebody in the audience, um, uh, a lad called Mitch, who was, uh, who was saying when De Canio arrived, oh, I was really excited, it was, it was a breath of fresh air. It turns out he was just an idiot. Um, and I think one of the things one of the things about Sunderland certainly this is my this is my perspective is that quite often it's a football club that needs a lift it needs a spark beneath it um, Roy Keane did that brilliantly when he arrived um, there are reasons for that historical reasons I'm sure there's political economic reasons you know you can even look at it that that to that depth um, but when that sort of touch paper was lit by by Roy Keane those, those all those years ago it had an absolutely brilliant effect and it kind of rippled out through the city and when the football team is doing well you can feel it across the city just like at Newcastle. Um, there was that initial reaction when De Canio came in but it, it, it dissipated it dissipated pretty quickly. You can't, look up, you can't look upon that appointment as anything other than disastrous. Yes he kept them up um, but to, to lose his job 12 games into a two and a half year contract um, you know, the, the the club was on the verge of civil war. It was falling apart. The dressing room was falling apart. I feel desperately sorry for for Sunderland fans, having been told for a couple of months that uh, Phil Barsley was the antichrist. Uh, then Gus Poyer comes in and says he's spectacular and extraordinary, and you know there he is in the team doing very well. He's a, he's always been a six, seven out of ten fullback. He actually. He actually gives a damn about Sunderland, Sunderland which you wouldn't think to, um, you know, to have heard some of the stuff that's been said about him. And also his own behaviour was appalling, you know, don't get me wrong. But, um, you know, and here we are again at the start of another era for Sunderland. It's, you know, it's, it's, I almost can't bring myself to write yet another footballer saying it's a new era. We've all got smiles on our faces. The manager, which I've just had to do today, following <laughs> um, you know, we've all got smiles on our faces. It's brilliant because I was just doing that six months ago, and then I was doing it a year before that. You know, um, there needs to be some stability there. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm rabbiting on. Um, they did something interesting in the summer. They tried to do things differently. There's been a paucity of ambition in the in the transfer market, as far as I'm concerned, at Sunderland. It's been too obvious. It's been too Premier League. 
dominated. They try to do, do things differently. The success or failure of that is completely down to whether they've got the right people in the positions of responsibility, and there's no suggestion that they do. But be honest, and I think you will be, when, when Decanio arrived, was there any part of you that could tell it was going to be a disaster it, straight away? Well, that first week when, all, when his, you know, his personal beliefs were all over the front pages was a pretty good, you know, pretty good suggestion that things weren't going to be quiet. And that was handled spectacularly badly uh, by the club. Um, you know, he got two great results against Newcastle and against Everton. Um, so that sort of clouded things a little bit. Uh, personally, I found him and um, his views and... Uh, this sort of very, very disciplinarian nature to be pretty repulsive. Steve, in, if you're in the dressing room and someone has that kind of rant and treats players like they're children who ought to be at Borstal, what can it ever work, being that hard line? Uh, not nowadays, no. I think the big part of it now is man management. Um, having had 512 managers in 20 years at Newcastle, <laughs> I certainly uh, think you know you can talk tactics and this, that, and the other. But with the hand you dealt and the players you've got, it's about getting the best out of them. And once you start digging them out, certainly your captain as well, then that filters. And once that almost cancer sets into your dressing room, then ultimately the only way it's cut out is by you. A change of manager. Um, a couple of things. It's actually nice to be talking about mayhem 12 miles down the road than on <laughs> our own doorstep. And when they did appoint to Canio, I actually thought, isn't it nice to have something different rather than just picking out of that goldfish ball of he's had three or four goals, let's give him another try. And part of me thought, you know what, that might just work. And for Newcastle fans, barring one result, it, it certainly did. Uh, I, I only... <laughs> You know, my, my current manager now at, at, at Hull, Steve Bruce, and you look at his record now at Sunderland, if he hadn't been a Newcastle fan, I think he, he might still have been there. That no, was, that that's was not held, true. That that's was, not true. Well, I think his record stands up pretty well yeah, no, I, what's no, happened. I, I, Since then, they went the opposite way and went for a Sunderland fan. It didn't work out with Martin O'Neill. De Canio, certainly they tried... They gave him too much free reign to do too much too quickly, and that doesn't work. Sam Allardyce did that at Newcastle. He came in with a preconceived idea that the place was a was a bit of a mess, and brought in you know 512 staff and too many players, and I think too many of the old guard. He tried to do it too quickly, and too many of the old guard that had been there a while sort of reared up against it. And once you have that in your dressing room, and that sets in, then I think you're fighting a losing battle. And when I saw that happening at Sunderland, I, I thought, you know, I can't see that working out as well. But um, I, want, I, I would like to defend Sunderland actually on on the whole Steve Bruce thing. Go on um, you know that that his where he was from became an issue in his last game in charge when um, you know when they when they lost to Hull. Hull, am I right? Uh, Wigan, sorry, Wigan, um, <coughs> and you know they they chanted they chanted uncomplimentary. Uh, things about him. Sunderland fans showed great patience. St. Geordie is uncomplimentary. Well, they shouted it no. at Newcastle. <laughs> I was there for the Newcastle game. They were shouting it there. No, OK, but fine. But, you know, I, I, I actually adore Steve Bruce and I think he's a really good manager and I'm sad it didn't work out with him. I think, you know, I think the rug was pulled from beneath him when, when he had to sell Darren Bennett for one thing. And, they, you know, they never quite recovered from there. Um, but... Um, 
Sunderland fans and indeed the club showed Steve great patience there was a great will for him to turn it around and they gave him every chance to I'm afraid that by the end that just that just couldn't or didn't happen and um, it was only in those final couple of games when you know they were you know he'd lost the relationship with supporters that the fact he was a Geordie and had a fondness for pies Possibly, <laughs> um, was used was used against him, but, but that was not you know that was not the reason why he didn't why he didn't. I better there. move on to Gus Poy then. <laughs> having, worked, having worked with Gus for a month at Brighton, um, where ultimately his ambition cost him the job there by, I think pushing the button of the chairman too many times. Uh, I uh, I like Gus, and you know after his first game, his first home game, I, I, I wished him well and. I, I think he'll do well there. Um, you know, obviously new managers get a bounce, and he certainly had that with a couple of home games. But I think he'll change the way they try and play, and with the emphasis on keeping the ball. And from you know, from the radio show I do up here, Sunderland fans said the way they played against Manchester City, the ball retention, and the way they went about winning the game, there were certainly good good shoots of uh, recovery there and as, long, as long as they finish below Newcastle and Hull I'll be yeah, I don't mind them staying up Was the delay in appointing Poirier because of the fear of another moody foreigner Holly? Well I think that There's a similarity th- yeah. in, in well, out, is, yeah. outward perception yeah. of yeah. Decanio yeah. and Poirier it, isn't it? It's almost like they, you know, they had a checklist and they thought big name ex-Premier League player foreign um, slightly Tempestuous, temperamental, should we say? Um, it, it, it's slightly weird. I, I don't, I don't know the people on the Sunderland board as, as I would imagine George does. But is there any feeling that perhaps they they like a big name in a in a way that in a way that they probably shouldn't? I mean, it's it's one thing going for the manager who got Swindon promoted from League Two, and it's one thing going for the the. Uruguayan manager who, who did very well with, with Brighton but it seems impossible that they would have gone for those names without them being um, big names who had been Premier League players I, I, I know this sort of star struck um, thing is, is quite common in football but Sunderland from what I know of the people there they, I mean have they fallen for it? <coughs> no I don't think it's that I mean Big players, yes, but certainly not big managers. Mm. And um, you know, I think, as I sort of touched on earlier about the sort of whole transfer market scenario, they'd Ellis Short decided that this summer he was going to set up a new system. In fact, he talked to Martin O'Neill about that towards the end of the season before before he got sacked, and he introduced him to Roberto De Fancy, the Keith Lemon lookalike um, <laughs> director of football. There. Um, and uh, so that kind of change was already was already in the cars and nothing came of that and obviously Martin left um, but they wanted uh, they wanted a first team coach or head coach whatever they're called whatever he's called um, head coach as opposed to a manager and they have a system where they have a Italian director of football an Italian uh, chief scout and they wanted to branch off in in that sort of direct direction the logic of uh, appointing Paolo Di Canio didn't I mean, no. I can understand what that you know, a young, ambitious uh, coach with personality who'd done pretty well in the lower league. I think that was really the really the way they looked at it, and the same with Poyer, but obviously with a bit more of a bit more of a track record. And part of the delay before announcing his appointment was certainly that what they didn't want to get was Paolo Light. Mm. Um, 
and you know certainly so far the, the signs seem to be pretty pretty positive. Do any of the um, four Sunderland fans in the audience want to say whether they feel comfortable with Gus Poy, that they feel this is a, an appointment for the longish term that might work? There's two, two in the front row. Quite possible <laughs> that Poyet knows the championship and Di Canio didn't and that maybe Ellis Short thinks that if he does get relegated, which is quite likely, that Poyet does have a much better chance than Di Canio would because, well, as I say, he knows it. And also a point we've, I've discussed quite a lot with people is that will Ellis Short spend a lot in January or will it only be if he thinks we actually have a chance of staying in the league? And that if he thinks we're dead and buried, he'll just almost even sell players so that we can cope better in a championship. You're making me well up. That's quite sad. <laughs> George, George, cheer him up. It's going to be a was, big that, cash that was, that was That was Mitch, whose line I nicked earlier. Um, well, you know, they bought, what was it, 14 players in over the summer? Um, uh, not all of them sort of expected to sort of get into the first team straight away but certainly mixed I mean very mixed is, is probably the kindest way of putting that um, uh, so getting money to spend in January isn't necessarily you know necessarily the answer per se there have been meetings or there were supposed to be meetings during the international break between Poyet and Defanti and, and the club hierarchy to look at what they have. He's not had a chance to do that yet, uh, Poyet, and decide how they can go, you know, how they can go forward. Um, you know, they lost their kind of biggest saleable assets or most of them over the over the summer. Um, you know, that's another thing. Uh, you know, to lose Mignolet, um, Sessegnon and for and for Rose to go back to Tottenham was a kind of was a you know was a big blow. Um, so Will there be money to spend? I would imagine there would have to be, you know, there would have to be sales, before, you know, for that to happen. Never ever underestimate the power of desperation, because I know for a fact that Martin O'Neill had been told by Ellis Short at one point that whatever happened last season, he would be staying on as manager. Now I know that from one of those two people involved. It doesn't take a genius to work out which one it is. That didn't, you know, that didn't happen when Ellis Short thought Sunderland were in danger of being relegated. He acted. So, you know, there's a balance to be struck. At the moment, they've got a chance. So you would think that there's more, you know, that there's more chance of them doing something. Steve, you've ever had dinner with Ellis Short? <laughs> no, but I did. Uh, I wasn't too far away when Alan Pardew walked past him and got a very rude response from him when he tried to say hello to him in the in the tunnel at the stadium. I like. Um, oh, tell us more. Not, uh, <laughs> I think it's pretty much common knowledge. <laughs> um, but no, I mean. As George said, you know the, there are signs of recovery there under Gus, and I think he's trying to change the whole ethos and style of, of football there. And if if you were ultimately relegated, would he then do the same in the Championship? Haven't haven't tried that with Brighton. He would have got Brighton out of the Championship if he'd got the extra couple of players that he was after, and ultimately kept banging on the door for. And as I said, sadly that did cost him his job at Brighton. But while I was there. You know, in the dressing room, they had the TV on, and whenever there was a job coming up, he was saying, "Should I go? I, think I should go for that. I should go for that." So he obviously he always had his eye. He always had his eye on on bigger and better things. So someone might have a new manager now. So <laughs> they might depends what's come up. Um, so he always wanted a, a bigger and better job, and he's 
he's uh, he's got the opportunity now in the Premier League. Right. Well, hands up. I thought when Hull were promoted, they were no hopers. I mean, they couldn't score in the Championship. I'm not quite sure still how they were promoted. They seem to me the most likely team to struggle. Instead, there's this incredible air of realism and organisation at the club, and they're doing rather well. And I think probably it's fair to go to the man who plays there to tell us why it's going so well. Um, well, pretty apart from the last game when we got battered at Southampton, we've been very solid, and we've had six brutal away fixtures: uh, Chelsea, Man United, Everton, Tottenham. Arsenal and then, uh, sorry, uh, Newcastle and and Southampton, and we've competed in every single one of them, uh, barring 45 minutes at Southampton and the first half an hour at Chelsea. We've we've played very very well and been unlucky to to lose five of those six games. And at home, um, he says, sounding like a Newcastle fan with Crystal Palace at home on Saturday. <laughs> um, what can possibly go wrong? Um, you know, it's Saturday. Saturday is a big game for us because. Um, if, if we hopefully go on and beat Crystal Palace with 17 points from, from 12 games, we're in a good place because the week after that we've got nine days of Liverpool at home, Arsenal away and Swansea away. So all of a sudden Crystal Palace at home becomes a, a big game and if we win that we'll be, we'll be going well. But if we get injuries in, in key players, um, somebody mentioned earlier Huddleston, Livermore in the middle, are probably two players we can't afford to lose. Um, so, so far so good and come five o'clock on Saturday night hopefully we'll be sitting pretty pretty uh, solidly tucked in the middle of the table but uh, I've been very impressed with Steve you know from from I'm not just saying that because he might be listening um, <laughs> but I heard about I heard all this you know negativity from Sunderland tactically this that and the other and I've been there for 11 games and we've played three different formations um, so you know nobody can say he's a he's a one trick pony or he's limited in this that and the other. He, 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 has, he has a very different public persona from from what he's yeah, like with players. I don't he? think he gets enough credit for. Yeah, he played three five two last year and you know very good defensively and won one nil a lot, but it worked and to get Hull out of the Championship into the Premier League is is no mean feat and I don't think he's got the credit he deserves for that. But a bigger achievement would be keeping us in the Premier League and hopefully like I said on five, 5 o'clock on Saturday night we'll be well on the way to doing that I really like a manager who thinks it's his job to look at the opposition and work out a way to beat the opposition instead of a manager who thinks I have a way of playing if, if we end up losing because we're going to Stamford Bridge or Old Trafford mm. so be it because I'm going to stick to my plan Ollie do you, do you admire Steve Bruce's pragmatism? Yeah I do I, I, I've always been impressed by Bruce as a manager and, and if we're talking about um, his time at Sunderland I, I think as, as George sort of implied that there's a situation at Sunderland where people seem to you know the team seems to go stale very easily uh, under new managers there always seems to be a bounce but the, the, and then we see it get smaller and smaller so perhaps the Poyet bounce is already over I don't know but the um, no I I, I thought, apart from those perhaps final six, twelve months at Sunderland, I, th- I think Steve Bruce has shown himself to be a, a fairly shrewd manager, and he's always bought well as well. Is that is that what happens, Stephen? Does he is he just assiduously going through the weaknesses of? 
the opposition and he has no ego about my teams only play this way we're going to fiddle around because I think the best way to be Team X is to identify that weakness and change our tactics accordingly. Is that is that what you mean by well? The biggest example equations? would be we played Tottenham away twice in four days recently. I played in the league game on the Sunday where we set up as a five, knowing what was going on with the crowd to frustrate them, mm. you know, limit them to long range shots and and try and catch them on the counter attack, which we did, and arguably in the first half had better chances than them but for a, a dodgy penalty don't get me started on that uh, we lost the game 1-0 we deserved a point from that game he said we changed a lot of the personnel in the week did the same for the first half an hour and we couldn't get the ball and we, it was um, Sigurdsson scored an unbelievable goal we 1-0 down and rather than wait till half time or stick to his guns he changed it and he went 4-4-2 and after, as soon as he changed it we started getting on the getting on the ball at half time he came in and he said right Rather than sitting back, it's a cup tie. Let's have a go and see how good they are. Yes, they're, if we sit off and let them, they can keep it and they can play. I'm not so sure that they're as good as people give them credit for with the ball. So let's go and have a right go at them, 4-4-2. And we did that and we were unlucky. It was 2-2, we lost on penalties. And we caused them a lot of problems. And at half time, I'm sitting there, you know, 20 years at Newcastle, the pessimist thinking, I'll oh, just keep it the same and <laughs> hang on, we might nick one late on. And he came in and, you know, if, oh, don't go 4 4 2, we might get battered 5. From a goalie thinking, we might get beat 5 or 6. And he went, right, it's a cup tie, let's have a right go. And I, afterwards, I thought, you know what, what a great call that was. And, you know, that's my best way of saying I saw both sides of him. And rather than being this one up front guy, he was at Sunderland, by all accounts, the soul. Jan and, BN, and Ben so he only had one player to play up front as well so I've seen a lot of him in the, in the dozen or so games that I've been there and I've been very impressed So come the end of the season are we thinking Newcastle finish higher than Hull who finish higher than Sunderland is that does anyone in the audience think that isn't how it's going to end up? <laughs> Good lad is this Mickey? Is this Mickey? Mitch. 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 Uh, hi, I'm Mitch. I think that it will be uh, probably Newcastle highest, then Sunderland, then Hull. But I think all three might stay up, maybe. We'll see. It's a long way down through that window, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's put it another way. Does anyone in the room feel that all those three clubs will escape relegation? Newcastle for Arsenal four match. Yeah. What was the elbow drop all about? <laughs> well, that, if ever there was, I mean, talk about pessimism and optimism wrapped up in one game. Um, to be four nil down after 26 minutes in front of the Gallagher end is not really a good place to be, um, especially when you know we're we're up the hill four nil down, and I'm thinking. I'm going to be the first goalie to let 10 goals in in the Premier League. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I, I'm pretty slow at goal kicks at the best of times, but now I'm stalling for half-time. <laughs> and one guy, one guy in the Gallagher end shouted, hurry up! And I'm thinking, we're 4-0 down against the Red Arrows. It's half an hour gone. We just need to hang on for half-time. Now, at half-time, I went in and I said, basically said, if any of you put the white flags up, I'm going to be the first one to let double figures in it. And with Alan Pardew, he came in and made a, 
a, a, a good speech. Uh, a classic piece of advice from the goalkeeping coach as we came off the second half was you haven't got your fingerprints on any of the goals let's just keep it that way <laughs> basically none of them are your fault whatever happens make sure none of the rest of them are your fault as well and even when we scored you know Joey did his what Joey does well and you know got, got the crowd going got us back in the game even when we scored to go to 4-1 haven't been at Newcastle for, for so long I thought oh no the crowd are going to think we're going to get something now <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be 7 or 8-1 because but then it's it's 4-2 and then it's 4-3 and and, and four, what happened at 4-4 was and I, I, I ran over obviously checked ran all the way up I ran over and in a split second thought I'm a big lad if I jump on these I'm going to hurt somebody so why I did an elbow drop I don't know <laughs> but I actually elbowed Leon Best in the hamstring and he went into spasm and had to go off so if I hadn't done that we may well have won the game five so where it came from I don't know there's a bit of WWE from the past um, but I mean talk about the, the both extremes of being not just a footballer but a footballer at Newcastle United I came in after that game and just sat down and thought what on earth has just happened because you know, it's an emotional roller coaster being a footballer anyway, but certainly in Newcastle and for it to be wrapped up in ninety minutes and an elbow drop. That was that was <laughs> Yeah. That's as well as I can explain it anyway. Uh well, the curious career of Steve Harvey. Any any <laughs> other um you may, while he's here, ask ask about another classic match. Is there anyone else who wants to pick his brains? Hi, Sean. Um after your testimonial, I was just wondering, do you practice your penalties? <laughs> um <laughs> Well, my son scored his at half-time. I don't know if you saw that as well. I think being a goalkeeper, you always want to take a penalty, and I'd, I'd had it in my head for all the years. If I got a penalty, I was going to smash it as hard as I could. And when I walked up and the goalkeeper made it pretty clear that he wasn't going to move, that didn't register in my head. I was always going to smash my penalty in front of 50,000 people, which I proceeded to do, and he still even tried to move out of the way, and it still hit him. <laughs> And I was too ashamed to take the offer of a retake from Mark Clattenburg and walk back with me tail very much between my legs, yeah. But uh, I'd, I'd always wanted to take one. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, the whole point of the night was to, you know, charity match as it was. To, it was, to, it was everybody had said everything we tried to do and tap into and remind a few people at the football club of what it's all about and how you can engage the public and get them on side and buy into what you're trying to do and it, it couldn't have worked any better. Definitely it showed from the amount of people that turned up and the AC Milan team that turned up how big an occasion it was. So, yes. Yeah, no, no, it was, well, thank you as well for coming because ultimately, you know, it was your, it was your hard-earned money that it was a privilege to, to give away knowing it was going to fantastic local causes as well. So Remind us how much it was. Um, it was 327,800 and something, um, which we gave away to five, I think five very good local charities. So even today I drove past the, from town I drove past the Great North Children's Hospital and it, it, it made me sit a little bit taller knowing that we'd given them six figures of, of money knowing it was going to, to good causes. And it was a no-brainer, you know, I haven't had such a good relationship with the, the fans here. To, to put something back so it, it was a pleasure and the whole night worked and I'll just embarrass Steve a little bit further at this point but um, it's a measure of the man that, that, that he did he did that whole night obviously in a much smaller way 
he's asked uh, not to take a fee for tonight and wants it a uh, donation to go to the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation. So thank you for that thank as well, Steve. It would be remiss of us not to mention Middlesbrough. Is, is Viva Mukherjee in the audience? He has a question about Hi, Middlesbrough. Hi. Uh, what do the panel think about Middlesbrough's appointment of Ida Karanka and the new strategy that Steve Gibson's adopting, forging links with... Um, Peter Kenyon and super agent um, Yorgi Mendes to get youth players from Europe, um, the young players from Europe, like um, to get get up, you know, from the championship. Thank you, Ollie. Um, well, the sort of links between players and oh, sorry, between clubs and agents always concern me greatly. I, I think those kind of things very rarely work well. I mean, if, if if you were going to align yourself to any one agent, you'd probably want it to be George Mendes because he's, you know, he's had great. You know, he's, he's got wonderful players like you know, Cristiano Ronaldo is one of his, and he's um, obviously Ronaldo's not going to end up in Middlesbrough, but um, not perhaps not this season. Um, but you know, he, he's got a, an enormous sta- stable of players, but but you might end up with with Bebe rather than um, with the next Ronaldo. So it, it's. Um, I mean, Karanka is an extremely interesting appointment. I mean, to be um, Mourinho's appointment, I mean, uh, you know, so Mourinho's assistant, obviously Steve Clark wasn't he? He's turned out to be a very good manager. Um, but you, you just don't know. I mean, he might have been Mourinho's assistant because Mourinho just liked him or trusted him or, or felt that he was going to be a, a bit of a yes man. You never know when somebody gets a job on the basis of what kind of assistant manager they've been um, in the past but I would say of, of Middlesbrough and I would say you know, I would say of, of, of a lot of clubs currently but particularly Middlesbrough I think having been there relatively recently it's one of these clubs that is extremely depressed at the moment or has been extremely depressed in recent times and it just seems like it needs to be energised in, in a way that we talked about Sunderland needing to be energised and I mean, Tony Mowbray, in theory, should have worked. Others should have worked, in theory, but but they don't. And it's, um, I think they need to try something different. They need to have a longer-term strategy. They need to try to be more sophisticated, more clever in some ways. Because if not, you know, a um, sort of large town club like Middlesbrough is in danger of becoming completely marginalised in English football. Because it seems to be. That those type of clubs are, are having been relegated, you know, they sort of fall to the margins. And Sunderland need, sorry, Middlesbrough need to try um, something different. And let's see how it goes. Yeah, there's. I mean, it's again, it's very interesting what they're doing. We talked about Sunderland and how how they're doing things in terms of recruitment and what they're doing with head coach, their head coach and and stuff like that. I actually had a chat with Steve Gibson today. Um, thinking this might this might come up, and you know, if I could choose a chairman for any football club, I would choose Steve Gibson. Um, um, he's gone down he's gone down the obvious routes. He's gone for the you know Gareth Southgate, the ex-player who was at the club. He's gone for the local hero. He's gone for Gordon Strachan. 
Uh, I don't know why, that's not a category in itself. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> he's gone for the Gordon Strachan. Um, uh, and he's sort of, he's done, you know, he's done sort of all that sort of stuff. And this is now, you know, the parachute money is not there. And I absolutely know what you mean, Ollie, about it being sort of a depressed. And, you know, I've been there this season and it wasn't much fun. It's not much fun seeing that stadium mm. um, empty. But they've got that wonderful, for a club of Middlesbrough's uh, resource, to have that stadium, to have an absolutely incredible uh, training ground with an amazing hotel attached to it, which is, you know, which is uh, built by Gibson's, Gibson's uh, sort of baby, and to have the wonderful academy, which is headed by Dave Parnaby. You know, they've got a lot going for them as a championship football club. They've got facilities to rival anybody, really, in whatever division. What they've done, they've gone, you know, I, I don't know a lot about um, Karanka as a, as, a, as a coach, I don't know what he'll do. That's not the only thing they've, they've done. They've announced a tie-up so far with Atletico Madrid for a kind of swap of players. Um, the idea eventually will be that, um, you know, promising young players will come from Spain to Middlesbrough, will be showcased, they'll get experience. It's a shop window for Atletico. It's also a chance to give them experience. Players could go the other way, they could learn something. I know that they're looking at similar arrangements in Italy, uh, possibly elsewhere. There's no saying that it's going to work, um, but equally, you know, I think, I think spot on, I think they had to do something different um, and they've, they've gone for it and they've gone for it in a, they've gone for it in a big way. Steve, have you, think, have you had your dinner with Karanka? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I just, uh, I just think, why not? I think they've both touched on that. You know, when you you, you mentioned big crowd, uh, big ground, small crowds, the budget, no parachute payments. What they have been trying to do hasn't worked, and it's certainly cheaper to loan players and have a tie up with a foreign club than splashing out transfer fees like they have done, trying to buy your way out of the league. And why not think outside the box and try something different? It's interesting you said they won't sign. Ronaldo and of course they won't but I mean they, not too long ago they signed Janinho which was an extra, mm. I mean, extraordinary I mean in that time uh, you know it wasn't that it wasn't that long Ravinelli. ago and Ravinelli and yeah but I mean Janinho was the I'm trying to think what he was South Africa, South American player of the year that year or whatever um, you know and I mean the good news is that Gibson is, is every bit as committed uh, as he always has been and fingers crossed fingers crossed they get it right it's, I mean it's I think they've left it too late for this season but there's also a thing where these link-ups with clubs, I mean, I can understand the appeal to Middlesbrough of linking up with Atletico Madrid, but I look at the sort of Watford-Udinese situation, which um, it's, it sounds great, but I just feel like there's a, this sort of identity thing that is in danger of disappearing. And I, I look at Middlesbrough a decade ago, they had a lot of, or even five, six years ago, no McLaren, they had a lot of local players in the team. That, that won't change. You sure? Yeah, no, no, no that, I mean, that won't change. That, that, I mean, anybody, anybody coming into the, to the club has to have a commitment mm. to the academy, and the, the one exception to that was Strachan, and that was, mm. no, that was disastrous. There's they, a question in the second um, row. I'm Niall, me and my dad are both fans, and I was um, listening to um, what George was saying about Artur Karenka and the talks with Atletico Madrid, and I couldn't help but just let out a big sigh. Because, um, frankly, I think, obviously, Gibson's got an appetite for big names, but, like, Janino and Ravinelli are proof of that. But don't you think they've taken it a bit too far? 
Firstly, I have that effect on a lot of people, don't worry. Um, great question. I mean, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, uh, they've, they've tried to go down the domestic route. They've tried to go down, um, you know, I think you, you, you can sort of see the thinking we, with each appointment. Um, Southgate was the continuity candidate, the captain who had the club in his heart. Um, Strachan was the guy who was going to come down from Scotland, toughen them up, bring in, uh, bring in Scottish players from the divisions who, who would be on less money, who wanted something to prove. You could see the thinking, you can certainly see the thinking with Tony Mowbray, um, you know, that reconnection with the club's past. Um, it, he, he would argue, Gibson would argue, that they're still a well-resourced club for the championship. I mean, I think, I, I don't want to kind of quote figures because I can't, I'll, I'll get it wrong, but you know, I think he would say something like top six in the championship still in terms of resource. Um, it hasn't worked. I, you know, nobody wanted uh, Tony Mowbray to work more than Steve Gibson did. And, you know, uh, arguably they could have done some, they could and should have done something in the summer and that would have allowed them to move on um, sooner. I mean, one thing I would say is that the, the you know, the, the, the time of Ravinelli and Janino and, and Emerson and all those, all those players that we remember was an incredibly exciting time to be a Middlesbrough fan and certainly to report on Middlesbrough. It was, it was fantastic. Um, uh, you know, it was, the most, it was the most successful spell in their history once you tag the Steve McLaren era onto the end of it. And they're just looking for something different. You know, they're looking for a new way of doing things. One thing I know about Steve Gibson is he won't have done it lightly. And once he, once he is committed to something, it will be, it will be all in. Does that satisfy you, that answer? <laughs> I, I get that a lot as well. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Um, thank you to the excellent panel, Ollie, George, and of course, Steve. I don't think I've met a more eloquent footballer. Um, thank you to you, the live audience, for your contributions. And we do this again in February in Manchester. Goodbye.